1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hello, welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York. And I'm Chelsea White in Portland, Oregon.
3: This week, we're talking about surprising research into the potential heart healing power of placenta cells how young and midlife adults are using more mind-altering substances, and also how artificial intelligence could help us detect tsunamis from changes in the atmosphere.
2: Plus why a turtle shell may be the best record of past nuclear radiation contamination. This past Wednesday was an exciting day in space. I don't know what day isn't exciting in space, but this time we've got the Indian Space Research Organization, or ISRO, successfully landing a craft gently, near the moon's south pole.
4: Sir, we have achieved soft landing on the moon. Yes. India is on
0: the moon.
2: That's the cheering from the scientists and engineers crowding the control room after the careful, controlled descent of the Chandrayaan-3 mission's Vikram lander. India is now only the fourth country to successfully complete what's called a soft landing on the moon's surface after the U.S., China, and the former Soviet Union. Space reporter Leah Crane joins us from Chicago. Leah, this is a really exciting and historic moment for India, right? And also just in the context of global efforts to explore the moon.
4: Yeah, it's particularly exciting for India because it's this sort of relatively young space program that's really up and coming. That's been able to do this when previously it's only been countries that are already big space superpowers. And that really demonstrates that now there are more programs able to explore space than ever. And it's really opening up the field, which is great for a ton of reasons, but largely just because it's good to have lots of different countries that are able to do this. The
2: last time we had you on, it was to talk about two different lunar exploration missions that were aiming for the South Pole. The other was Russia's Luna 25, which was the country's first moon mission in 50 years. That did not end quite as well. What happened there?
4: Uh, it crash landed. <laughs> um, it was doing a pretty small orbital maneuver to lower its orbit a little closer to the moon's surface. Something went wrong. It smashed down. You know, Obviously, the Russian Space Agency is investigating. We don't know exactly what went wrong yet, but we do know that that spacecraft is dead.
3: Is this uh, sort of a reminder that we still can't take the moon for granted as an easy place to explore? I mean, you know, we've been there, so it feels sort of been there, done that, but it's maybe not. Or I'm also maybe there's something about the way that Russia approached this mission that
4: was different from other countries that have successfully landed on the moon recently. I'd say it's more of the former. Landing on the moon is difficult Uh, Mm -hmm. regardless of how many times you've done it already. You know, it gets easier with practice, but nobody's done that much practice yet. The other thing is that Russia's space program has been in decline for a pretty long time. They've had a lot of failures. They've had insufficient funding. And we've really seen that in the missions. So when you ask if Russia did something different than other countries, no, Russia did pretty much exactly the same thing that they also did when they were the Soviet Union (laughs) in the 70s. But there hasn't been a lot of innovation, and some of that knowledge has sort of leaked away. So I'd say no one was super surprised that the mission wasn't successful. Obviously, it's sad. We're hoping for, for two great moon landings. But you know, the bottom line is it's hard, and Russia is having a particularly hard time at it.
3: Yeah, this also, you know, watching these two missions sort of attempt this felt like a little bit of a mini space race, you know, which country was going to land first. I'm
4: curious how much political prestige India gets from this moment. A lot. Um, I think India gets a lot of bragging rights for this one, (laughs) Um, especially because there was earlier, I believe in the 2010s, this planned collaboration between India and Russia to do a moon landing Mm -hmm. and India backed out which means that the media and folks in government in India were really keeping track of these two missions. It was unclear which one was going to land first. It was unclear if one was going to land and the other wasn't. And so, of course, we now see what happened. I think that folks in India can be very proud of it, in addition to the fact that space is always a source of of national pride.
3: And then what about the science? You know, the Vikram Lander had instruments. Presumably India has a long-term set of goals for their space program. So where do they go
4: from here research-wise? These first missions are always more about a technology demonstration than anything else. Yes, Mm -hmm. there's a few instruments to make some measurements. Mostly we're there to prove that it's possible and that India has a spacecraft that can land on the moon. From here, India is ready to start sending more sophisticated spacecraft up just like all of the other programs that are sending landers to the moon, the idea is eventually to send humans. That's probably going to be a really big international effort. But mm-hmm. what this mission's done is proven that India is equipped to be a major part of that effort.
2: And then we have Japan's space agency, JAXA. They have a lunar craft launching in just a couple days. Could we see a fifth country soft landing on the moon sometime soon? It
4: is possible. It is possible. Um, it's really a popular destination. There's a lot, (laughs) there's an insane amount of lunar landers going there this year. And I think it's only going to ramp up in the next few years. Up
3: next, the placenta is an underappreciated organ, but it's increasingly being recognized as more than just a one-way nutrition source for the fetus. Growing evidence suggests that the placenta doesn't just look after the health of the fetus, but also the pregnant parent. Our reporter Alice Klein in Australia wrote about a new study that suggests that cells isolated from discarded placentas could even one day be injected into people who've had heart attacks to help repair their heart damage. Alice, the idea of using cells from placentas to treat heart attacks seems kind of bizarre. How did this even come
5: about? Yeah, so there's actually a really interesting backstory to this. It all started when this cardiologist called Hina Shoudhury at the Ikan School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York had these two pregnant patients with a form of heart failure. And they just kind of spontaneously recovered without any treatment, which was a bit weird. And so it made her wonder, you know, was it something about them being pregnant that somehow allowed them to recover? Wow, and had anyone looked at that before? Not specifically, but Chaudhry then had a hunt through the literature and found some research done in the 90s by Diana Bianchi, who's now the head of the NIH Institute of Child Health and Human Development which showed that fetal cells can actually cross into a mother's circulation, and that women who had given birth decades ago still carried these cells. So then that made her think, okay, well, if cells from a fetus can cross into its pregnant parent, could these cells have some kind of healing mechanism that might explain why her pregnant patients spontaneously recovered
2: from their heart failure? I mean, you don't hear spontaneously recovered from heart failure very often. <laughs> How does she go about testing that question? So to begin with,
5: she experimentally damaged the hearts of pregnant mice. So she basically inflicted heart attacks on them. And then when she studied their hearts afterwards, she found that cells from their placentas, which had come from their fetuses, actually traveled to their damaged hearts So that kind of hinted that they may be providing some
2: kind of repair function. I'm still trying to figure out the placenta heart connection here. Why would cells from a fetus go via the placenta to the pregnant parent's damaged heart?
5: Well, no one really knows, but Shaudry thinks there may be some kind of evolutionary advantage to a fetus being able to send out cells to repair any damage that occurs in its pregnant parent. Because as she says, the fetus needs to protect its home. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, that seems like a good strategy. So then what did she do next? So then she looked at exactly which kinds of cells were travelling from the placenta to the damaged heart, and she found that they were this specific type that expressed a protein called CDX2. So then with her colleagues, she tried injecting these CDX2 cells from placentas into the tail veins of male mice that had these induced heart attacks and found that they traveled through their bloodstreams to their hearts and basically repaired them by transforming into beating heart cells and blood vessel cells.
3: So these cells taken from placentas just naturally found their way through the bloodstreams of the male mice to their damaged heart tissue and then transformed into brand new heart cells when they got there?
5: Yes, it it does sound kind of crazy, but that's what they found.
2: This sounds super exciting, but I I think it really always bears repeating that findings from studies in mice can end up not applying to larger mammals and humans. So what have we got so far in connecting this research to us, Alice?
5: Well, most recently, Chaudry and her colleagues collected over 100 placentas from people that had given birth, and they found that they all contain these special CDX2 cells too, And then when they studied these human placental cells in petri dishes, they found that they could also be coaxed into beating heart cells and blood vessel cells. So these are the first tantalizing hints that they may also be able to repair damaged hearts in people. But of course, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done to prove this. And the researchers are now going to test the cells in pigs before then
2: hopefully moving to clinical trials in people. If this was shown to be an actually effective treatment for heart attacks in humans, would it be feasible to be injecting people with cells from placentas as a kind of treatment method?
5: Yeah, well, unlike things like embryonic stem cells, there are less ethical issues with getting cells from placentas because they're usually discarded after birth anyway. So there's pretty much a limitless supply. And also what we know so far about placental cells is that they don't seem to provoke immune reactions possibly because growing placentas need to be tolerated by the maternal immune system. So it's hoped that this could maybe even be an off the shelf kind of thing. You know, you could use cells from basically anyone's discarded placenta to inject into anyone who's had a heart attack. But again, this is still a long way off.
3: That's really bonkers. But if that does turn out to be the case, placentas
2: might finally get the recognition they deserve. All right, now we're going to take a quick moment to toot our own horns. Did you know that we have other podcasts in the very same feed as this one? Earlier this week, Culture Lab brought you some killer recommendations for this year's TV, from science fiction to documentaries.
3: Come for the zombie fungus, stay for the slug sex. And coming next week, Dead Planet Society is saving the world for once. (laughs) You heard that, right? I'll be talking with space reporter Leah Crane about using a giant gong to stop an asteroid. You won't want to miss a thing.
4: I want to alert the population every time we've saved them with our <laughs> <sheets>. <laughs> I want them to be alerted by a loud gong sound.
3: And if you love what you're learning along the way as we talk about the latest news, brain-bending TV, and destroying bits of the universe, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It takes just a quick moment, and it really does make a difference in helping other listeners find us.
2: Last week, a big report on substance use in the U.S. dropped. The Monitoring the Future study surveys nearly 30,000 adults every year. And it found that we, meaning young adults under 30 years old and midlife adults under 55, are using psychedelics and marijuana at levels much higher than in the past. Health reporter Grace Wade is here. Grace, how big was the jump?
6: Right. So one of the main takeaways from the report is that the appetite for mind-altering substances in the U.S. is booming. Both marijuana and psychedelic drug use hit record highs last year. Almost 44% of young adults and 28% of midlife adults reported using marijuana in the past year. An all-time high. No pun intended. (laughs) Daily marijuana use also broke records. More than 11% of young adults and almost 7% of midlife adults said they had used cannabis on at least 20 of the last 30 days. That is double the rates we saw a decade
2: ago. Yeah, and that's, that's quite a jump. How many adults are using psychedelics? So
6: about 8% of young adults and 4% of midlife adults said they used hallucinogenics such as LSD, psilocybin, or MDMA last year. That is the highest rate ever recorded. For reference, only around 3% of adults reported the same a decade ago.
3: I know we've been covering the growing research into the potential therapeutic uses for psychedelics over the past years. Is that possibly related to this uptick? And is this a one-time blip or is this part of a broader trend?
6: The results are certainly not a surprise. Marijuana and psychedelic drug use has been escalating for almost a decade now. We don't know why exactly, but there are a few theories. One of the largest contributing factors is most likely legalization. So currently, medical marijuana is legal in 38 states, and 23 of them, plus the District of Columbia, which is D.C., allow recreational use. A handful of cities, including Denver and Seattle, have also decriminalized psilocybin, the psychedelic compound in magic mushrooms, and two states, Oregon and Colorado, have legalized the drug for medical uses. This not only increases access to the drug, but also makes it more socially acceptable. There's also a widespread belief that these drugs have health benefits, which may be driving up their use, especially given the high rates of mental health issues in the country. That said, research on most of these benefits is still in its infancy, and using these drugs isn't risk-free. There can be potential harms to people vulnerable to certain mental health conditions, like schizophrenia. Using these substances without speaking to a doctor can also prevent people from getting a proper diagnosis. But it could also be that people are shifting their drug use away from other more harmful substances. That's interesting.
3: Is there any evidence for that?
6: Yes, but mostly for young adults. For the past decade, use of opioids, sedatives, and alcohol have been declining among younger adults in the U.S., Binge drinking, for instance, decreased by 5 percentage points since 2012 in this demographic. Hmm. However, older adults are actually drinking more. So about 29% of midlife adults reported binge drinking, defined in the study as having 5 or more drinks in a row, within the past two weeks, an increase of more than 6 percentage points since 2012, and another record breaker.
2: Wow. You know, I was under the impression that binge drinking had been on the decline, and I'm somewhat in that midlife demographic, but I also feel like I know so many people who are shifting to entirely non-alcoholic lifestyles, too. Do we know why binge drinking is up in that age group? Again, it's too early to
6: say, but one possible explanation could be people are using alcohol to cope with the stress of the pandemic, the economy, climate change and the political landscape in the U.S. On the flip side, binge drinking can also increase for celebratory reasons. More people are going to weddings, bachelor parties, and other festivities where alcohol is common after years of lockdown.
3: When you think of tsunamis, you probably think of undersea earthquakes creating large waves on the ocean surface. But tsunamis also create ripple effects in the Earth's atmosphere. And now researchers think they have a way to use satellites and artificial intelligence to spot tsunamis earlier and perhaps save lives in the process. Technology reporter Jeremy Sue is here. How does a tsunami affect our atmosphere, Jeremy?
1: In the case of a tsunami, the water waves traveling across the ocean's surface can actually compress and otherwise disturb the air above in what's called internal gravity waves. Those internal gravity waves can travel upward through the air, reaching all the way up to the Earth's ionosphere. That's an upper region of the atmosphere with a lot of charged particles. And when they reach the ionosphere, the gravity waves change the density of the charged particles. So if you can measure that change in the atmosphere's charged particle density, you can potentially detect a tsunami down on the surface.
3: I mean, that's pretty wild. (laughs) But how do you go about detecting those atmospheric disturbances in the first place?
1: As it turns out, One great way of measuring those disturbances in the ionosphere is by looking at the radio signals passing back and forth between satellites in space and ground stations on Earth. Because when the radio signals pass through the tsunami-related disturbances in the ionosphere, their speed and other characteristics can actually change in ways that are measurable. And in this case, global navigation satellite systems, such as GPS— are particularly useful because they frequently exchange signals with ground stations.
2: That is really, really cool. We've got a very basic tool that a lot of us rely on for getting around, and just by existing, it can also tell us something about a major natural hazard. When we're looking at something as rare as a tsunami, though, do we really want to task a bunch of scientists with just, like, sitting around and taking notes on GPS data?
1: Right. So uh, this is where the AI can come into play. A data scientist at a satellite manufacturing company called Terran Orbital Corporation teamed up with researchers at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the Paris Institute of Planetary Physics in France to figure out how to train AI models to automatically detect these changes. But instead of trying to analyze the satellite signal data as a series of changes over long, continuous periods of time, These researchers actually applied a technique to transform shorter chunks of that satellite signal data into two-dimensional images. And this actually simplified the problem, in a sense, by transforming it into an image classification challenge, Mm. which means that the AI is now looking for certain features within those images that can indicate tsunami-related disturbances. And that allowed the researchers to use an existing AI model that was previously developed to analyze images. So no new algorithms needed.
3: That makes a lot of sense because, you know, we know that AI is pretty good at looking at image, image classification problems, you know, trying to figure out like, is this a staircase or is this, uh, you know, uh, breast cancer in an MRI or something like that. So
2: that's a really great use of that. Yeah, and I mean, if we can just take an off-the-shelf model, does that mean we can expect earlier tsunami warnings really soon?
1: Yeah, I think everyone wishes it were that easy. Uh, unfortunately, although this AI approach actually performed pretty well in this initial demonstration, it was only tested and validated on four historic examples of earthquakes that led to tsunamis. So to really prove its worth, it will need to detect a much larger number and more diverse set of tsunamis across a bigger data set. And uh, one of the biggest challenges is actually getting access to the GPS satellite signal data that's necessary for this kind of tsunami detection. There are tons of satellites out there, but they're all owned by different governments and companies who typically don't share such data openly. So the agreements that may be required for setting up a global tsunami detection system represents more of a people problem and not an AI problem.
2: All right, it's time for some of the stories we also found exciting this week. On my list, Chelsea, I've got new research about how turtles can store the historical record of nuclear activity, like weapons tests and power generation, in their shells.
3: Wow, this sounds a lot like how we can see changes in wood samples before and after nuclear testing.
2: It's very similar, yeah. So turtles and tree rings both take up detectable amounts of radioactive uranium isotopes from their environment. But even though every tree ring is a good indicator of what happened in a specific year, the uranium can kind of diffuse across different rings. So you might actually see it spread across years where no testing actually happened, for example. So the record in a tree might actually be a bit more blurry than uh, something else we might look at. Huh. Yeah, that's not good if you're trying to accurately connect this to history, right? Right. So that's why we get to turtles. They may hold the answer. Their shells, um, just for some background, are made of these hard bony scales called scutes. Scute. Oh, what a cute word. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Turtles just scooting about in your scutes. <laughs> um, so unlike a tree ring, once that sort of bony scute layer is deposited on the shell, it's effectively time-stamped. There's not as much like sort of passage of isotopes between layers. So the team was able to prove this by sampling scutes from turtles that had been in museum collections. And they could accurately connect scute layers to years where there had been a weapons test, um, like the ones at Bikini Atoll, or a power plant contamination event. And they think it might be possible to sample shells from living turtles in the future, which would make it possible to continue to deepen our understanding of how nuclear contamination is still entering and shaping ecosystems even years after those events.
3: Well, that's really cool. Now let me do one. Uh, Back in my (laughs) role as the poop correspondent, we're going to talk about Dog poo and how it's making the Norwegian tundra greener.
2: Is this green in the eco-friendly sense or literally green? No,
3: the latter. There's just more vegetation. Uh, And that's because there's this growing tourist industry around sled dog adventures in Svalbard, which is that archipelago of islands in the north of Norway. And these dogs live in yards, and a research team figured that the soil around them should get a lot of excess nutrients from both leftover food scraps and dog poop. So they looked at the satellite data to analyze how much green light was being reflected from different locations in Svalbard back in 1985 and then in 2021. And what do you know, everywhere got greener, (laughs) but the areas (laughs) around dog yards had the biggest jump in greenness by 44%.
2: All right, but why would everywhere get greener if the dogs are only pooping in their own yards? Well, the researchers suspect that
3: some of the increase in vegetation is just from the warming climate, which makes sense. You know, they also warn that a more plant-friendly Arctic isn't something to celebrate. It could very well pave the way for an invasive outside plant that could throw off the balance of ecosystems or outcompete native plants or even provide shelter for animals that might prey on rare seabirds.
2: Yeah, it never feels quite right to have, you know, an Arctic that's more hospitable to life. Yeah. But, um, could the sled dog tourism people just get the same little baggies that the rest of us use when we take the dogs out? Yeah, I mean, it seems like that might help. All right, one last one. A good story, a nice combination of engineering and climate solutions. It turns out that we can make concrete almost 30% stronger, and all you need is coffee, Chelsea.
3: Well, I mean, I believe it. I also feel 30% stronger after I've had my coffee. But what is it doing in concrete?
2: (laughs) Well, ordinarily, concrete contains sand. This is like a filler that gives the cement component more stuff to stick to, and it helps the material harden into that very strong artificial rock that we know and love or don't love, depending on our relationship with gray cement. (laughs) But a research team in Melbourne, Australia, wondered if used coffee grounds, which are, you know, really gritty also, might be able to do the same work in concrete. And lo and behold, well, regular coffee grounds actually just weaken concrete, so we, we can't use those. But if you bake the grounds without oxygen for a couple hours, you get this charcoal-like substance called biochar, and biochar does make stronger concrete. In fact, you just have to replace about 15% of the sand with coffee biochar, and then you get your 30% stronger, you know, hulk concrete. Was the team looking to make stronger concrete in
3: particular, and they just happened upon coffee? How do you discover something like this?
2: Yeah, it was actually more of a what do we do with the millions of tons of used coffee grounds the planet produces every year sort of thing. In a landfill decaying normally, coffee is actually a problem because it releases methane, and that's a really powerful greenhouse gas, as we know, so baking it and sticking it in concrete, which happens to also be a lot stronger, may end up being a good way to reduce the methane emissions of used coffee grounds.
3: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a win-win. That's great news. Yeah. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, our show notes have links to all the stories you heard about today.
2: You can subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on right now. Thank you, and bye for now. Bye. Bye.
1: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen